I remember at that time, my mother had to take me to see him, which was probably part of their divorce agreement. He was in an army uniform. It was dark outside. And I sat in the back of a car while the two of them were in the front. And I knew he was going overseas. And that's the last time I saw him. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Today is a different kind of curiosity story. It unfolds in four voices, told by people who are curious not so much by choice, but by life. It begins with my mother-in-law. My name is Sandra Kolker. The last time I saw my biological father, when I was 10 years old. As the years wore on and I lived this big secret because no one was allowed to know that my mother had been divorced and my, what looked like my father was really my stepfather. Uh, I, I lived a lie but was taught to never tell anything but the truth. But my curiosity remained constantly. I remember going into my room as a child thinking, half of me is him. There was a time at 16 that he and his brother hired a private detective, found us living on Long Island, And when I came home from school, my mother was beside herself and said, oh, they had found us, but that it would hurt the feelings of my stepfather. And she had not told the truth and didn't know where I was, that I had eloped. And that was the end of my contact. I was 16 and I was so trained to be passive that all I did with that information was open the door and walk outside in the dark of night, which was something I would never have ordinarily done. And I remember walking until I literally couldn't walk anymore. And I never discussed it ever again with anyone. Well, I had known that she had always wanted to know about her father, but I wasn't sure whether, if push came to shove, she would actually want us to research it at this point in her life. So we have a friend, Jennifer, who's very skillful at Ancestry.com. When I was a kid, I loved those logic grid puzzles, the ones where you're given certain facts and then you have to make everybody line up. And I just love those. I love that sense of solving a puzzle. And when I sort of fell into genealogy, I found a place where I could do nothing but logic grid puzzles. And I love it. And it's, it's just piecing together the past from a series of clues. And I had actually done some research with her first uh, without having first spoken to my mom. But before we went any further, I was just talking to my mother on the phone one day. And I said, you know, we have this friend who's really great at using these computer research tools to find out family members, would you be interested in, in us 
trying to figure out uh, anything about your father. And she instantly, without any hesitation, said, absolutely. I just think there's a real hunger for people to connect with biological family. It's incredibly powerful, that desire to know whether it's an adoptee who, even if they've had the most wonderful experience with their adoptive parents, they're curious about their biological family. Who were they? Where did they come from? What were they like? It's just a curiosity. And people who've been separated from biological family, I do a lot of Jewish genealogy. Families were separated by the Holocaust and uh, and other historical factors. People want to find those people who are share their DNA, who are part of their families. And I think that's what fuels all of this. It's this intense curiosity. And she just started clicking away. And I had never looked at this website or any of its resources. And she was just so fast at it, pulling up this and that, asking me all these questions about where they lived and how to spell the name and whatnot. People live, they marry other people, they have children, they have jobs, they die. And there's only pieces, fragments of that story left. And I feel like what I do as a genealogist is piece together the story based on the fragments. I think the most amazing thing in the beginning was when she pulled up what she called old old man draft cards that middle-aged men had to fill out in the early part of the 20th century in case we went to war to such an extent they had to start drafting 30, 40, and 50-year-olds. And she pulled up a draft card from my biological great-grandfather who had been born in 1880 in Poland and had filled out a draft card, I believe, at the time of the First World War. And not only did we have the information from what he gave the draft people at the time, but it was literally a, f- a, a photo image of the card he had filled out with his signature. And one of the great mysteries of my mother's early life was that she didn't actually know for sure how to spell her birth name, which was Perlman. Did it or did it not have an A after the initial E? And there was this man's handwriting, Frank Perlman, written, I think, in 1914, very clear cursive writing, Frank Perlman, no A. And it was like, oh my goodness, uh, this is proof. So we had done a bunch more research after the initial meeting with Jennifer, after my mother gave the official go-ahead. And by the time we met with her in person, a few months had elapsed. And we had a quiet afternoon. We sat her down to show her what we had found. And one day... My younger son and his wife, who are both people I love very much, were visiting. And as I came downstairs, they said, come look at the laptop. You might find this interesting. And lo and behold, there was the draft notice from World War I for my grandfather. And that was the first time I cried a happy cry. And one of the things that we had found at that point uh, was a photo image of a gravestone. Uh, Somebody goes around the country taking pictures of gravestones and then they're, they're searchable. 
and there was a tombstone that appeared to have the name of my mother's biological father. Well, I was a little sort of skeptical because, you know, Jewish families from New York, people who grow up in Jewish families in New York don't typically end up in Paducah, Kentucky, but I have certainly seen everything. So you never sort of rule anything out definitively, and you never sort of rule anything in definitively. By searching for this missing Aaron Perlman, who was born in New York City, and we knew his parents' names, I was led to record for this Perlman who had died in Paducah, Kentucky, and he was born the right year in New York. But I was kind of like, why would he have ended up in Paducah, Kentucky? But you know, I I presented it as a possibility, and it would need further investigation to say for sure whether it was him. But I wasn't I wasn't finding other Aaron Perlmans who were elsewhere who could have been him. Um, so I knew that the candidate in Kentucky was a pretty good possibility. So we told her we were not certain that this was her father, but it could be. It was in Paducah, Kentucky. We had no idea why her Jewish father from Brooklyn, New York, would have ended up in Paducah, Kentucky. But those were where the signs were leading us. So we showed her that, and that was quite an eye-opener. And and she, of course, could remember certain things. So we were quizzing her about her father's siblings, because we were beginning to show names from the census data, I believe, that showed other people from his family. Uh, luckily, I had a very good memory as, as a very small child. And so what helped in all of this investigating was the fact that I knew my uncle's names. And at some point we're sitting there, my mother has a computer, I have an iPad, you have an iPod touch, and we're all searching the internet frantically and we're looking through Ancestry.com and we're looking through Google and Facebook and I stumbled upon an entry that somebody had put onto the web at a different website, genie.com, in 2009, and it had very little information in it. But it was the missing link of the jigsaw puzzle because what turned out to be my mother's first cousin had put a few things onto this family tree on this website that listed my mother's father and his two brothers. And there was enough information from this little bit of family tree that it connected all of the other dots that we had been looking at so far, but we're not sure whether they all belong to the same family. And there it was. So while we were sitting there with my mother, I saw this family tree and I realized, yes, this is really her father. And we showed it to her. We showed her the names of her uncles, which matched her memory and the census data. And we realized that this, in fact, was the guy. And so it was the right Perlman, you know. So then we started showing her all the other things. And, of course, one thing leads to another. So once we had the names of the uncles, we did, in fact, have the names of a couple of my mother's cousins. And, in fact, one of them lived within an hour or so of my mother in Florida. And we started using other resources on the Internet and got a phone number uh, for one of the cousin's husbands. And he was a dentist in Florida, and you found the phone number, and you, uh, we called, and we got an answering machine, which gave us his cell phone number. <laughs> and my mother was uh, 
completely fearless and eager to go, and she just used the phone and dialed these numbers, and she got, within a half an hour, I think, the dentist, uh, the husband of her first cousin. And he was very confused when she tried to introduce herself. We could hear most of what he was saying. And he was trying to tell her, you must have the wrong number. And she, in a very polite way, said, no, 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 you have to hear me out. Um, And she explained a little bit more. And he listened. And he said, oh, my God. Yeah, I knew your father. He was at my wedding. And then he started laughing. He said, actually, he had a bit much that night. We wouldn't let him drive home to Kentucky. And that was a little over a year ago. And almost every day I cry a happy cry because what that did is open a door to where he he was, where he had been, what happened as he got older. And my father had married a second time and had a son. And I presently have a sister-in-law who is the widow of a brother I never knew who died quite young. They had no children by choice. And she was living in Paducah, Kentucky, where she came from. And I had her name. Well, she just called on the phone, and I don't remember exactly how she got started. And I was just so shocked, you know, to hear from her. And we talked forever, and she asked me so many questions. Well, I was just uh, thrilled when I heard from her. Uh, she's such a wonderful, delightful person. And and time has gone on this past year. I call her once a week, and sometimes we speak for more than an hour. She always says, hello, dear even though I'm older, and I'm grateful to her, and she, in turn, is grateful for my existence because, as she says, you're bringing him back to me, meaning her husband. So it's a wonderful circle. And uh, I was with him uh, when Louis Perlman, Jack's brother, told us about the sister. I laughed and told her. I just always imagined her of a little girl that was just not there anymore. And I did ask my husband, I guess a few years before he died, if uh, he would be interested in trying to find her. And he wasn't. And so, but I thought about her. That would be on my mind. I could not imagine having a little girl and not seeing her or just being there. I don't know how to explain that to you, but... I never knew till all of this um, that probably when my father found us when I was 16, that I knew, but she told me she had said I had eloped. And this was said to my uncle, a detective, and my father. Judging by what I hear out of the mouths of my sister-in-law and cousin, my supposition is that she, in fact, most likely said, Sandra doesn't want to see you. And uh, my cousin 
when she questioned my uncle, the, the response was, well, sometimes things need to be or should be left as they are, but I know she's all right. Well, then I was really curious, you know, mm. how, how would he know this? And, of course, that died with him. I thought all of the, uh, Frank's family, my husband, they were all gone. So it was just, well, to hear her voice. And then after I met her, she reminded me so much of their father. And I was telling her, as it worked out for years and years, I carried these boxes around with me when I moved of Frank's family. And because he did not have relatives, I didn't want to dispose of them, but I really had no reason to keep them. And my sister-in-law in Paducah loved my father and took care of him in the last three week, three months of his life when he was dying of lung cancer. And the other night, after telling me she loved him, and at the end of that same conversation, she said, your father really would have loved you. Well, I dissolved. <laughs> you know, she, I, I, during the course of the conversation, I said something, and she said, oh, that's just how your father would have said it. Or I'll, I, while we were in Paducah, she saw my eyes in the sunlight and said, oh my goodness, you're, you're just like your father's eyes. And so it's just really been a blessing to meet her, and they mean so much to her. And also the ring that I had of uh, their father's that uh, I don't know how long he had had it, but he wore it all the time, never took it off. So I was able to give that to Sandra, and she seems to be grateful to have it. And it's just, um, it gives you cold chills at times. It just really does. Well, the ring is is this amazing thing because obviously knowing what became of my dad, learning what he was like from some of the relatives who were still alive and who knew him uh, was amazing, has been amazing. But the ring is something he wore, and she has pictures of him wearing it. And for her to now have it on her hand is such a, a fabulous connection. And obviously she can't have total finality. He died 30 years ago before she was able to uh, find him and reconnect with him. But the fact that she's now able to have this thing that touched his skin on her skin every day is just a wonderful, wonderful thing for her to have at this point in her life. I have always wanted to know about Frank's grandparents, and Sandra sent me pictures of the headstone and just so much information that I just wanted to know well about my husband's family that uh, you can't help but want to know. And uh, so with Sandra, I'm learning now more about the other side of the family, thanks to you all finding the information you found out. And I'm looking forward to me uh, meeting some of the relatives that, uh, well, Frank, too. I I'm sure he knew some of those people when he was young because 
He visited in New York. It's just a shame that more questions weren't asked. And I, I hate that. I really do. You know, it's been interesting to watch my mother over the past year because she's been just starved for any information she can get from her cousins uh, and her sister-in-law, naturally so. Of course, there's been some bitter sweetness to it because she learned so late in her life. On the other hand, uh, the fact that she has had so much more closure and knowledge about what became of him and what he was like as a person than she ever had since the age of, you know, eight, is just an extraordinary thing. So it's uh, it's just been really nice. Obviously, some sadness that it, it stirs up, but it's been a wonderful thing to help her uh, learn a little bit more about the man she never really knew. Hello, sister-in-law. Hey, dear. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm okay. We're in a little studio, and this is where Lynn tapes different shows that she has when she has people speaking about all kinds of subjects. Guess what ring I'm wearing? <laughs> <laughs> Your father. Well, what did they think about the ring? Your son well, you, and Lynn? You know, when you look at the ring, you're not just looking at a ring. You're looking at history and a story, you know. I, I look at it, and I see my father. So it, it's not just the ring. Well, oh, what about uh, those call mails? Are you all going to take care of that? or? This is the place I step back into the story momentarily. Among the many treasures that Jenny found in her attic were two voiceograph recordings of Jack. She wasn't sure what was on them or when they were made, and the technology is long gone, but I found a firm in Philadelphia that could convert the little records. And then, Sandra could hear not only her father, but her little half-brother as well. Good evening, everybody. Here we are at Daytona Beach, Florida, in 1953, the Frankie, how do you like it down here in Daytona? Okay, Dave. Where's this ring? Have I seen you? You've been having some fun? Yeah, I like to see it. What do you like to go on vacation all the way down south this way? Mm-hmm. In, in Florida? Am I? How do you like Florida? Okay, Dave. Hi, Jen. Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm fine. Um, you play a large role in how fine I actually am right now. <laughs> well, I love to hear that. It was my pleasure. It it is um I you know, the old cliche a dream come true. It's really not true. It's a heck of a lot more than a dream come true. And um I speak regularly with both my sister in law and I never knew I had a brother who is now deceased. I speak mm-hmm. once a week with her in Paducah, and I speak with my cousin, who lives on Long Island, 15 minutes from where I spent 40 years of my life. Wow. And, um, you know, these a year ago, these two women would have been strangers, and now they're saying, I love you. The poet Raymond Carver wrote in Late Fragment, his last poem, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? 
I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved of the earth. I mean, they all, Sandra, Jenny, Jack, they've all found themselves beloved on the earth. It's still a bit of a mystery how Aaron J. Perlman, born on June 14, 1911, of Frank and Celia, and originally of Poland, then of Brooklyn, New York, found his way to Paducah, Kentucky, and ended up as Jack, but so many other unknowns have been answered, it's hard to quibble. We might learn more. We can stay curious. And if you're curious, I've got a family photo album with pictures of Jack and Frank and, of course, The Ring on Facebook. There are lots of good resources available for researching your genealogy. We started with Ancestry.com, and I've got a link to them as well. Come take a look. Special thanks to my storytellers and the stars in this curious tale, Sandra Kolker, David Kolker, Jennifer Mendelson, and Jenny Perlman. Thanks, too, to the staff at George Blood LLC in Philadelphia for their work in converting the voiceograph recordings and to Antonio Villaronga for helping me reduce the static so we could hear Jack's voice in this story as well. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious on WERA LP 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other shows here on Radio Arlington, listen online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my other shows on Facebook, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, or iTunes, all at Choose to be Curious, or on my website at choosetobecurious.com. And follow me on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Music for this show with thanks to Typos, Herbert Boland, Fool Media Boy, Ubik, Robert, and Royalty Free Music. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.